God allowed this particular angel to be struggling with another spirit, another B'nai Elohim called a prince for 21 days. And it got to the point that he even had to call Michael to help him. Welcome to another episode of God in the Paranormal, a podcast exploring all things strange from a biblical worldview. Last time we looked at the importance of the supernatural in the biblical worldview, and we laid a foundation for understanding future episodes. If you haven't watched episode one, I suggest you go back and see that one first. Also check out our quick pots. These are brief supplements to our episodes that we hope will help explain finer points. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Suzanne, and I'm here with John. Ever have a pet mouse? No. Yeah, a, a have mouse. you? Uh, well, being a science teacher, that gives me an excuse for doing all kinds of eccentric things. I can just say it's for science. So yeah. you had a pet mouse. <laughs> yes, I did have a pet mouse. It was a couple of years ago. It happened to be in the pet shop, not looking for anything in particular, and I was surprised that they had bred such pretty colors of mice that I, I didn't know about those. But, <laughs> but anyway, I started thinking, wouldn't it be neat to teach with a mouse on my shoulder? Wouldn't that be cool? Like, yeah, you are such a fun teacher. Would you feed it crackers and name it Polly? <laughs> Arr, maybe. But anyway, <laughs> I found one that was a very large female about to give birth. The thought just popped into my head, you know. I could buy one mouse and have like 10 mice in a few days. Then if my students thought, man, he's neat because he's got a mouse, I could actually sell mice to them and have some <laughs> supplemental income. But, Side hustle. <laughs> and I took it to school because I couldn't keep it at home. They just smell too bad. But anyway, I put it in my school room <laughs> and it, it was the science building, actually. So a huge building. Next morning, no mouse. What? Where'd the mouse go? I didn't know, but I assumed it was in a big building and I'd already gotten tired of it because it did smell bad. So I decided I'm not going to look <laughs> for it. I'm, I'm never going to find it. So about six months go by and I start seeing these little signs of mice in my science lab. No. Little indications here and there, a few torn open seed packages and oh, no. footprints, things like that. I'm thinking, yeah, that mouse is probably still here somewhere, obviously. And maybe she did have babies. So I'm thinking <laughs> there's probably like three or four mice in the wall somewhere. I started noticing when I came in in the morning and turned the light on, I would see a couple of mice scurrying around somewhere. I didn't think too much about it. Then <laughs> the custodians came in and they said, you know, you have got a lot of mice in here. And I said, well, I'll take uh -huh. care of it. So I started putting out some live traps because I wanted to be humane. Every single trap had a mouse in it the next day. That was like four of them. And I thought, oh, wow. I didn't, didn't imagine we had that many. And then I, so I put out the traps again and caught four more and put them out again and caught four more. Long story short, 73 mice before it was 73 on. mice. So yeah, the point was, and I, I do have a point with this. They weren't paranormal mice, but the thing was, there those were 73 mice hiding somewhere in the wall or the plumbing or something. And the only clues I had were just a few little odds and ends or a few little signs oh. that mice might be there. So yeah, I'm not trying to stretch this metaphor. Well, I am trying to stretch it. This metaphor is <laughs> way overstretched, but that's kind of like the unseen realm. We know from scripture that there are lots and lots of creatures in the unseen realm. But all we get in scripture are just little snippets mm. of things being there. And that's to be expected because we mentioned last time the Bible wasn't written just to give us all the information about everything we possibly want, even about the supernatural or spiritual. Second Corinthians, we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that really is true. So there's just kind of like, fingerprints of the supernatural and the spiritual or crumbs or footprints, like what you were saying. And we get some, a lot of that in scripture. Yeah. And it's kind of like a forensic mystery, isn't it? Because the clues are there. You just kind of have to dig them out and put them together. And to be honest, I went through most of my adult life without even considering much about how amazing the supernatural realm really was. 
I had ideas about angels and demons like most people, but it's a very interesting place. Yeah, I don't think most of us think about the spiritual stuff as much until maybe we're in a high crisis situation or something weird happens. Yeah. Did you ever see any of the Star Wars episodes? Well, um, my ringtone on my phone is actually Chewbacca calling. Um, And that was really awesome at first. And now it's really annoying. But it's definitely, yeah, I'm a big Star Wars fan. I actually saw the first movie when it first came out. So that's how old I am. Wow. And that, that cantina scene just blew me away because that was the first time I think I'd seen a, a science fiction show that showed just so oh, many wow. different various and diverse creatures. I was really impressed yeah. by that. But in the real universe and not a galaxy far, far away, the Bible <laughs> really does, like we said, describe some very interesting beings. And they're just beyond our ability to see most of the time. And it it is amazing. The Unseen Realm is just a very intriguing place, I think. So let's do a little detective work. Can you think of some people in the Bible who actually got to see into the supernatural realm? Yeah, well, when you actually think about it, there's a lot more supernatural things in the Bible than we first think about. For example, Paul in his vision of heaven. Mm-hmm. And John, when he's on the island of Patmos. Yeah. And even Jacob, when he wrestles with God. Yeah. And then there's an Elisha, Elisha, sorry, in Second Kings 6, where his servant wakes up and is super afraid because there's like an invading army. One of my favorite. And Elisha prays and asks that the servant's eyes be opened and there's like chariots of fire and all of these spiritual beings there present protecting Elisha. I picture that servant waking up and just freaking out about the Syrian army there. And he's just whining and moping. And so Elisha has to come up and say, it's okay. It's okay. Those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And the the servant's still just freaking out. And so Elijah probably just says, okay, God, could you please just show him what's out there? And so he lifts the veil, so to speak, and just sees, yeah, like you said. Like, what's really going on? Did Elisha always see that? Or did he just know that God was there in all of his armies? Yeah. It's it's an incredible story. I don't know. Either he had a lot of faith or God also gave him a vision of it. But that's really the way it is. And we're so caught up in just the natural part because it's what slaps us in the face every morning when we get up. And it's it's just there all day long. To me, it would be better if we just rename the supernatural the natural, and then let's call the natural the subnatural, because that's really oh, I more, like that. That's more what it's like than to think that well, the natural is the big thing around, and we've got this supernatural somewhere. But no, Scripture shows that the supernatural really is the focus of everything. That's where God is, and He created this natural realm that we're in now that we think is just so great and so compelling. So maybe we should go back a bit first and consider the supreme supernatural being in this place. We have a quick pod on God the Most High if listeners want more info. But what do we need to know right now? I think for now, the main thing for us to keep in mind is that God is sovereign over every other being that we'll be discussing. We'll see that there are a lot of inhabitants of the supernatural described in Scripture. Some people tend to lower God to just another one of them. But no, God created everything, period. He doesn't have an equal. He doesn't even have an opposite like in polytheistic myths. Scripture says that God is completely holy. He is one of a kind. He's the source of everything that is and totally in control of all that is. So it's not like the yin-yang or the force on Star Wars? No. uh, With the dark side and the light side, and you never know which one will win? Yeah, not even close. Does God have a place that he lives, or is he just everywhere? That's a good question. If you think about God in the very beginning, before he created everything, you would have to say that he was somewhere, but that kind of says that a location was there for God to be in. I don't think that's true either. I think God was everything. So I don't understand it, but somehow he existed as a triune God and he created a place to put things in, which would be us and the rest of the supernatural. But he's definitely omnipresent. He is everywhere at once 
Although we know that he can be in certain places in a special way, not just omnipresent. For example, the burning bush, he'd been inhabiting mm. the flame there. And we know that he yeah. met the Israelis at the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And the Holy yeah. Spirit, Holy Spirit somehow can live inside of us. And we also discuss the heavenly throne room that God resides in. Several Old Testament verses talk about a special place in heaven that God resides as his special holy place. I'm glad you brought up the heavenly throne room because we've been using terms unseen realm and supernatural realm. And what about the place we call heaven? Yeah, the Bible often uses the term heaven to describe either all or part of the unseen realm and sometimes something else in addition. I'm pretty sure it's just way more complicated than I could ever imagine. As far as what the Second Temple Jews considered heaven, they talked about three different heavens. And that's why the scripture talks about Paul being transported to the third heaven in one of his mm. visions. Because they saw uh, the first heaven, the air around you where the birds fly. And then like a physical, them, yeah. Yeah. To them, the stars and the sun and everything were kind of in a place above that that they considered the second heaven. And then God was even above that in what they call the third heaven. You use the term Second Temple Jews. For listeners who may not know, they're the Jews who lived from about 500 B.C. through the lives of Jesus and the apostles, about 70 A.D. The reason that's important is that they were the recipients of the New Testament, and they gave us a lot of the writings about the Old Testament. We understand much of biblical context through their perception. Yeah. You mentioned Michael Heiser in the previous episode. I credit him with pointing out to me the importance of context in understanding Scripture. The Bible was certainly written for us, but it was also written to a specific person or group. And we have to consider the context of those recipients' understanding. And primarily, we look at how the Second Temple Jews interpreted, because obviously they were the ones who wrote and received the New Testament. And also they wrote about the Old Testament. And so we kind of look through their eyes to do a lot of Bible interpretation. In fact, let's do a little interpreting right now. How do we interpret what the Bible says about the unseen realm? Suzanne, you're a Latin teacher, correct? Yep, yep. So how does it compare with English in accuracy? It's interesting whenever you deal with foreign languages, and specifically with Latin, it's really uh, translation-based mostly. There's some new movements to speak it, but usually you're, you're translating a lot. And what I've found is that when you translate from Latin to English, the original text in its original language is usually so much richer and more meaningful, or like one word in the original text can have different meanings based on the context, and sometimes that's lost in translation, or even like how the culture would receive this word versus how we receive it is just completely different. Yeah, it gets a little confusing with names of things and other nouns, especially in the way supernatural beings in the Bible are referenced. It helped me a lot to see how Heiser explained the context of some of these. For example, he says that beings can be described in several different ways. One way is as a set of characteristics, like I could say I'm a human or a man. And so the word human okay. kind of takes with it the idea, oh, he's got a head and fingers and a mouth and everything. Or I could be described by a role that I play, such as a teacher or a mm -hmm. gardener or a couch potato. That would be a, a yeah. that I kind of take on. Or I could take it further. I could be defined by the place that I live in or a dwelling place. I could say oh, that yeah. I'm a Southerner, in case people yeah. haven't found that obvious. And I'm an American. <laughs> so we turn that then to what we sometimes call supernatural beings. For example, a, a specific set of characteristics in the Bible would describe something like a cherub. We'll mention this later, too. A cherub is a definite thing that has certain characteristics. We could talk about yeah. a seraph or even Yahweh, the official name, the covenant name of God himself. And there's only mm. one Yahweh. So when we say that, we know we're talking about omniscience, omnipotence, and all the attributes of God. But what about a role in Scripture? This is where we pick up ideas like angels and archangels. We'll talk about this in a minute, but those are actually roles and not necessarily a characteristic. So what Heiser was trying to say was that when you use the word angel, which means messenger, that can have any set of characteristics because you're not defining a creature. You're defining a mm. role that a creature was playing. There's also some translation confusion when we 
use names to indicate the Most High, Yahweh God. Often we see the name Lord, which is a role name, obviously. We have people who are also called Lords. The English word God is sometimes confusing because it isn't necessarily always representative of a set of characteristics, although we use it that way in that we have the little g God, which we use to designate false gods. The actual word that's translated God from the Old Testament is usually the word Elohim, which again is a bit misleading because to a second temple Jew, that was a place descriptor, one who lived in the supernatural realm. Hmm. And it could be used for the most high God, or it could also be used for any other heavenly creature at times. It could be used in a singular tense or in a plural form, depending on the context. Look at Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Both of those words, God, the capital and the small case, are both the word Elohim in the Hebrew. The first one obviously is singular. The second one is plural. There's a good example of context telling us which is plural and which is singular, and also which is talking about the God Most High and which is talking about other beings around him. I suppose the most well-known and obvious supernatural beings are the angels, another one of our cultural obsessions, right? Yeah, it seems to be. Uh, they're right up there with Bigfoot and Ghost, except we know from Scripture yeah. that <laughs> angels actually do exist. Maybe not in the way most people think, but they are clearly throughout the Bible. Do you think they can be seen in this natural realm? Well, they have been seen in the natural realm. We have a lot of examples of it in Scripture. Uh, Hebrews 13.2, for example, says to be hospitable because you may be entertaining angels and not even know about it. person on the street that you give money to possibly would be an angel. That's pretty clear in Hebrews that, 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 that could happen. Yeah, that verse has always kind of stuck with me. It's like they're there in the background, that they're among us. Uh -huh. um, but it seems like they can take on some kind of physicality in the natural world. Abraham visited with three angels that look like yeah. men. Two angels in human form visited Lot in mm -hmm. Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't have a clue how all of this works. We know angels are spirit beings, yet if they want to, they can appear to have bodies. And a lot of times they have human bodies. Angels are good examples of that name confusion we talked about. Literally, in Hebrew, the word Moloch and in Greek, the word angelos. That actually just means messenger. And so back to Heiser's classification, these are literally roles that one of God's creatures yeah. could play. So we tend to think about angels like with feathered wings and things like that. But according to <laughs> according to this, an angel could be any type of creature. And scripture uses the word um, for any messenger, including sometimes humans. The yeah. first three chapters of Revelation are written to, quote, angels of the churches, which most scholars say are the human leaders of the churches. Yeah, it could be heavenly creatures, but it seems like it's talking to the pastors of the churches. So yeah. let's, let's get our first clue about angels. Job 38, verse 7, it says, While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. If you back up a little bit, the context is God is telling Job about the beginning of the world when he created everything while the morning stars sang together. So angels are equated with stars, even in uh, extra biblical accounts. You'll see that all through scripture. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean ancients believed angels were stars. It could be that they thought angels lived on or in stars some way. Morning stars singing in this passage would be like a pastor remarking, my, the front pew is really singing out today. He obviously isn't talking about the pew. He's talking about the people in the pew, something like that. So there's not much doubt here that it's talking about the angels singing together. They're watching God create the world and singing. So the first clue is they were there before the world was created. I think it's interesting, too, that if you think about numbering the angels, we know that there are a billion times a trillion stars in the universe. So I'm just speculating here. But if stars represent angels, is it possible that there are that many angels out there? I don't know. Wow. In our pop culture, in comic, kids' TV shows, dog that dies goes to become an angel or the human goes and has wings and stuff. And we're going to talk a little bit more about heaven. But 
Um, maybe we aren't getting it right in pop culture. If God had made all of these angels before he created the world, the angels are messengers. And when we die and go to heaven, um, if we know Jesus, we're not necessarily becoming a messenger, right? I think it started in Hollywood and it just sounded good to say when you die, you become an angel, but no, nowhere in scripture does it even talk about that. And and we know they're not robots. They have their own will and intellect and they rejoice. So obviously they have feelings, mm. emotions, and some of them are wow. even named. We have Michael and Gabriel. If Lucifer was an angel, then he would be, I guess, the third one. Since I'm a Latin teacher, let me just um, get in there about Lucifer. His name comes from the Latin word Lucas, which means light, and the fur, which means, which means to bear or carry. So literally his name means light carrier or light bearer. Um, and we see that in scripture when it's talked about him before he's fallen. Yeah. We'll have much more to say about him next episode. A major player. So how many angels? Hebrews twelve twenty two talks about an innumerable company of angels. And Revelations five twelve says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Myriads is a great but indefinite number. It sounds big. In my opinion. I think that's what the custodian said about the mice. You have myriads of mice (laughs) in the wall. So, I'm so glad you didn't lose your job over the mice. (laughs) Anyway, there are a lot of angels. And thanks to medieval and Renaissance artists, We've completely messed up the appearance of angels, I think. That's what you were talking about, that we have the idea that angels are winged, feathered, floating around somewhere in the sky. But also in medieval and Renaissance art, I mean, they're like chubby babies. Yeah, (laughs) chubby little babies flying around the throne. I don't think that's anywhere in scripture either. Also, beautiful women angels, like touched by an angel, and even winged and halos and things like that. The real story is... Did you notice almost every time an angel appears to a human, the very first words are, fear not. You must be pretty terrifying if you have to instantly say, hold on, it's okay, I'm not going to hurt you. Second Kings 19.35, one angel kills 185,000 Syrian soldiers in one night. Wow. That's a lot. That's a scary angel. That's not a little chubby baby. And two angels wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah. Kind of reminds me of the angel of death that happens as the 10th plague um, in Egypt. Yeah, Yeah. same thing. In all those cases, those angels were more than just messengers. So a different role again. And that's where some of the confusion comes in. In the New Testament, the word messenger gets a little bit looser because we see angels not really doing completely messenger type things. But in some of those places, it actually doesn't say that they're angels. It calls them something else. And we'll talk about that in a minute, too. Again, it's coming back to the translation where we have a limited vocabulary of what we can pull from when we talk about spiritual beings. So let's just use the word angel, right? Yeah, we tend to just use the word angel for every supernatural being. And that's that's one of the points of this episode is to show it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it may not affect your theology very much, but it does kind of affect the way that you think about the supernatural to know that not everything out there is an angel. There are other creatures mentioned in Scripture. We often think of them as angels, but maybe not. Yes. In Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. This doesn't imply that it's a messenger. It's a special creature, it calls it here. So it doesn't use the word angel. For all practical purposes, then, I guess if you're getting picky, this is not really in the role of an angel, at least at this time. It's a seraphim, a set of characteristics, and it even describes it here, that it has six wings and how it uses the wings and things like that. Apparently, these are somehow guarding the holiness of God's throne room. And that gives us another clue, because obviously God doesn't need guards to guard his holiness. He's sharing a responsibility with another creature. That's going to come into play later, too, that God really doesn't need any other creatures. He's totally self-sufficient as a triune God, but he lets other creatures share in responsibilities for things. 
And here's another heavenly creature in Ezekiel 1. Listen to how weird this being is. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces and their wings were spread out above. Wow. These are the cherubim that we often hear about. And it's funny that the cherub is the thing we usually think of as the little Cupid guy that's cute little chubby baby. Yeah. Literally, yeah. though, it means fiery serpent. And uh, oh. yeah, they're another one of those things that are considered a warrior or a guardian. Imagine trying to draw a picture of this. I just don't think you can do it justice. But I think that's Ezekiel's point here, because he's looking at this stuff saying it's just totally impossible or awesome to describe it. Mm-hmm. We also know that cherub guarded the entrance to Eden. God put his cherub there with a sword. I mean, if you're going to guard Eden and keep people out, you would want something scary looking, I guess. And also on the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, it was two cherubs that had their wings together. Yeah. There are also other beings in the Job passage. Let's look at Job 38 again. While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This seems to indicate two different types of entities, don't you think? Yeah, sons of God translates into B'nai Elohim. We're going to be spending a lot of time on that. Sons of God in the Old Testament was totally different than when it talks about son of God or sons of God or children of God in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, everywhere it says sons of God, it means B'nai Elohim, which literally translates the sons of God. In this case, a place descriptor, according to Heiser's category, it doesn't indicate a type of being or even a role. It indicates someone who dwells in the supernatural realm. It is a location descriptor. Okay. Basically, all the non-humans that God created. If you're a human, you're not a B'nai Elohim. Everything else that he created that was an entity is B'nai Elohim. And so in that verse, it's just talking about all of God's created beings in the supernatural realm. Yeah. And some people go ahead and say it's directly created by God. So since you and I were born from parents, only Adam and Eve were direct creations. And some people would say that they are B'nai Elohim, according to that definition. I know that some sections of the book of Daniel are written in Aramaic instead of Hebrew. He uses the word Irem to describe a supernatural being. In Daniel 4, 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And for the word watchers in Aramaic, it's Irem. That is a very interesting verse. And like you said, it's Daniel is the only book that's written in Aramaic, which is a little bit different from Hebrew. But the word Irem translates into a watcher. It it literally has to do with eyes looking at something and especially watching over something. Not an angel. It's not in the role of someone taking a message. And you can tell in this verse, it says, There's a decree by the watchers. This is one of the first places we're going to see that God has not equals, but cooperators, if you want to call them that, that actually confer with him and make decisions with him. And in this case, it says the decision by the word of the holy ones. And that holy one there, we we tend to translate that into the saints in some scripture because people were so uncomfortable with the idea that God actually conferred with literal holy ones and that's what it means you can tell by the fact that it talks about the watchers first that it's talking about a b'nai elohim there 
So the watchers and the holy ones are very likely celestial dwellers or dwellers in the unseen. Interesting. And the saints we see in the New Testament as the holy ones and the da- and Daniel's in the Old Testament. So this is completely different vocabulary. Yeah. And also um, back to that Job verse again, some people say that that's Hebrew parallelism where you have two ideas kind of mm-hmm. poetically in a verse. To me, it looks more like the wording while the morning stars, those would be the angels singing that we talked about. And then it changes all together in the last part and says, and all the sons of God and angels would be B'nai Elohim. So it's like he's yeah. saying, while the morning stars, the angels were singing and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. There's a lot more going on in the supernatural realm than a lot of us consider. We kind of think angels and demons. Um, and then this is showing like, just to summarize, there's descriptors, there's messengers, there's watchers, there's, there just seems to be more going on. A lot more. And maybe there was a higher rank than the messenger angels, these Irem. We do see a ranking and a hierarchy. It's hard to tell sometimes exactly how that is, but we'll we'll see the word rulers and princes later, which obviously seems to indicate that it's a higher ranking being in some way that's governing over something else. You're right. They're not just messengers. They are literally governing. God has delegated to them mm-hmm. to be able to make certain decisions and to rule in a certain way. Yeah, we know that someday it says we will rule with Christ. And so right. it's not unusual that he would involve his other creatures in his ruling, whatever that entails. Do we um, know if the watchers are all good guys or could there be bad watchers? That's that a good have? question, too. The uh, extra biblical, the non-biblical sources from other uh, religions had them as both the good and the bad. It looks like in this case that it's a good watcher that Daniel is talking about here. Okay. But, but if they are B'nai Elohim in general, we know that some B'nai Elohim are good and some are bad. And in those extra biblical texts, it uses the word Iram and it's like Mesopotamian and such. Is that yeah, what? Whichever yeah. ones use the... Uh, Aramaic. And in the ones that weren't Aramaic, they would use the terms, and we'll see this coming up later, some just use sons of God, and they use Mm -hmm. it in a negative sense, because B'nai Elohim then would be the fallen spirits that rebelled against God. So there's a lot to unpack here, even just with this watcher's thing. So we'll have to talk about that later. Yeah. And even more intriguing verse coming up in Daniel 10, verse 10. The context to this is that Daniel was fasting and praying because he, it seemed like he wasn't getting an answer from God. And it says he waited 21 days and his prayers still weren't answered. Could you go ahead and read that, Daniel 10, starting in verse 10? Yeah. Daniel 10, 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from this first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Do you see why most people avoid this chapter? Yeah, this is kind of confusing when you really dive into it. And not just confusing, but man, it throws in some really strange things. And that is true. Some people in the past have just completely done away with Daniel because that's way too supernatural for us. But first of all, notice he doesn't use the word watcher here. He's talking about a prince. Mm. And he also even names Michael. And right. we, know, we know from that that Michael, it looks like in that last part, it says Michael, one of the chief princes. So now we have a clue that prince is something like what Michael was. Michael definitely was a B'nai Elohim, and he yes. did fulfill the role of angel several times. Yes. So there's there he is with all of those titles in one right there. So he was a special person. And also, there's a struggle going on. 
once again, I have no clue how this works, and it's just beyond my thinking why God would allow certain things like this. But then I start thinking, once again, God does what he wants to. And if he wants to involve his B'nai Elohim in human affairs, and it very much looks like that's what's going on. The angel that's talking to Daniel says, from the day that you first prayed, I started 21 days ago, but I was hindered by the prince of Persia. Yeah. Like I said, how in the world is that happening or what's happening there? For some reason, the answer to prayer was delayed for three weeks, not because God wasn't powerful enough, because he obviously could have just sent the message and answered the prayer himself. But for some reason, in his will, he allowed this particular angel to be struggling with another spirit, another B'nai Elohim called a prince for 21 days. And it got to the point that he even had to call Michael to help him. So look at all we're getting there. Michael obviously is a higher power than this angel that was there. So we see already that there are different levels of power among the B'nai Elohim. Yeah. And this also just kind of hits home to me because of the unseen spiritual realm that there is a spiritual struggle happening spiritual warfare yeah exactly is, what paul said you know going and, on yes yeah the ephesians 6 verse that we bring up that he says the struggle is not against flesh and blood I mean, imagine how many times a prayer might have been not answered for someone because a struggle in the unseen realm was going on i also like in this passage that Again, that whole fear not is one of the first things <laughs> that, yeah. that he says to him because at first Daniel says that he's a man and then he says, fear not. Something about them is terrifying yeah, imagine, <laughs> or just unfamiliar. <laughs> imagine seeing the prince or Michael coming, how fearful that would have been. Uh, it I, gets even better, though. Look, look down farther. Could you read Daniel 10 verse 20? Yes, Daniel 10 20. Now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Wow. Now, how do you even dig into that? I don't know. So he has to go Mm -hmm. back again. And for some reason, the struggle is still going on with the prince of Persia and Now the prince of Greece is about to come. So it appears, and we'll see this later too, it looks like various countries or nations or whatever have their own princes, which in this case looks like they're evil or fallen. And we could use maybe a different word for prince, like uh, like a angel or... Yeah, definitely one of the B'nai Elohim or Watcher. Yeah, Daniel yeah. didn't say watcher in this case, but that's okay. that seems to be what he was referring to earlier. That's really remarkable because if we weren't having this conversation, when I read in my Bible, I would think that they were literal princes. It would be hard for me to see. I mean, you can see that there's supernatural things going on, but just the the verbiage is interesting. Yeah, and I think one more evidence of that is it switches and eventually and talks about the king of Persia. So that probably was, I think scholars say that that was a human, but the actual prince was the watcher that was there in some way. And what do you make out of the fact that he says that Michael is the only one that can come to help him? There is none that contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. I've heard some people say that Michael is exclusively the prince of Israel. Oh, and that's that's where this okay. comes from. So okay. uh, we'll see later when it looks like God divided up the countries among the B'nai Elohim, that okay. Michael was the one in charge, the, the big prince over the Israelis at that time. So you're the kind prince. of setting up that like every kind of country has its own B'nai Elohim working over it. Uh, it seems that way in a verse that's coming up that will, I think it'll get even even clearer than that. But you were right when you talked about the struggle in flesh and blood. There apparently are good and bad B'nai Elohim. And that kind of blows your mind, too, because why would God create that? But, you know, we have the belief, obviously, that angels, we think, fell. 
Mm-hmm. And so why not think that the other creatures that were living in heaven also had free will and choice, and perhaps mm-hmm. they had the, the ability to choose to rebel too. And like I said, that's going to play into the Genesis 6 episode that we have coming up. So the verse we were talking about, I'll just go ahead and read it. It was Ephesians six twelve. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yeah. Four different bad B'nai Elohim there. So that would put Mm -hmm. the uh, rulers above something. Definitely not angels. They're not messengers. And then authorities and then something, cosmic powers, whatever that is, and spiritual forces. Okay, let's conclude this section by taking this into even stranger territory. Strange in the sense that it gets a bit too supernatural for some people. What we're talking about today, some things are just speculation. Some things are definitely in scripture. And I would encourage you to read your own scripture and think about these things. Can I just point out, too, that we are bringing to the table lots of different ideas. And these are not always necessarily our own views or our own ideas that we've come up with. True. This is coming out of research, discussion, and sometimes just questions. So we're just presenting it. Uh, we're just bringing it to the podcast. And that was the intent of this podcast, that it would spur conversation about some of these things. Yes. We hope that when you hear this, that you will email some questions or comments in and we can include you in the discussion. I hope it's obvious to listeners by the context that what we believe strongly and what are secondary beliefs are two different things. The main things in scripture, things that lead to a close relationship with our creator, those things will hold to the death. Secondary ideas like what we're about to discuss, we can discuss this. Yeah. So here it goes. Let's look at the book of Job, chapter one, verse six. Can you read that, please? Yeah. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And there we see sons of God again. Yeah. The same phrase right there. So apparently they're able to come before God in his throne, maybe the throne room. But in some way, some respect, the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim are coming before God, which also includes the one that we're calling Satan there. Hmm. And it also insinuates that there's some kind of collaboration. We'll see that Satan and possibly the others are conferring with God or maybe asking questions or giving advice even. That's what Satan is doing. Yeah, let's go a little bit deeper. In 1 Kings 22, 19 through 21, and Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. Interesting. Yeah, a very interesting verse. If you want to get deep, as you said, look back at this again. We see a host of heaven here. So obviously this is still that group coming before God. Host of heaven generally just means it's more the warrior type when you see Hmm. that word. Okay. So they're standing there. But look what the question is. Uh, The Lord, it says, Yahweh God, is asking who wants this assignment. Yeah. And then it says one of them comes up and says something, and then another one says something. And finally, a spirit comes forward and says, I'll be the one to do this. And in this case, it calls him a spirit. So it equates the thing we're talking about here, the B'nai Elohim or the host of heaven, with just the general term spirit. Yeah, this is very interesting. But I mean, this isn't completely unusual because we just saw how Satan could come before God and provide feedback suggestions, etc. Exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of like a team effort. And and once again, be very clear, it's not saying that God is just one of many. He is still God most high. Yes. And that's the difference between the other religions back at, in the, at the writing of this and what the Israelites were thinking about this. They never saw God as just one of many. Well, most yes. of them didn't. Obviously at any one time, the Israelites were in rebellion and worshiping idols very many yeah. times. So And does, do you think this has to do, maybe we could tie this into our prayer life that we kind of collaborate with God? 
Yeah, wasn't it Pascal that said God gives us prayer so that we have the dignity of causation? So I know a lot of people believe different things about prayer that why pray because God's just going to do what he wants to. But knowing what this says about God and, and knowing the fact that we're told many times to pray. So prayer must have some kind of benefit and it must really, like the old saying says, change things in some way. And in some way, I again, don't even understand God allows my prayers to become part of his will. Even how Daniel prayed for 21 days and like didn't give up and God answered that prayer. I Yeah, prayer is a really amazing thing. And by the way, none of this is a new idea. We keep saying that, but this is still pretty much the view of the Second Temple Jews and the early church leaders. Yeah, I want to just kind of clarify that, bring that more to the surface. So what we're presenting here is the cultural spiritual worldview of the Jewish people, when they were reading their text that we read, they would have inferred these things that we are bringing to light. Some of this has kind of been lost in tribal knowledge. Uh Usually the opposition I've noticed to any of this develops when you don't want to be as supernatural as scripture wants you to be. So Mm -hmm. it's not really a disagreement over vagueness of scripture. It seems to be something like, oh, let's tone this down to make it more what my worldview is comfortable with. I've heard some say that this is what's behind passages such as in Genesis, where it says, let us make man and the Tower of Babel. Let us go down and confuse their language instead of referring to the Trinity. Yeah. When he says us all kinds of different ideas about that. Obviously, the going thing is to say, well, that's talking about the Trinity. And it could be. Uh, It also could be the fact of what we've just said, the other B'nai Elohim, and perhaps they did have some role somewhere in creation. And in the Tower of Babel, maybe God is saying, let's go down and confuse their language. And we should never interpret that as more than one God. It is God saying that we just don't know if he's referring to himself as the trinity or as to this b'nai elohim and the Urim, etc right yeah and it could be both or either yeah let's look at another passage psalm 89 5 through 7 could you read that let the heavens praise your wonders O lord your faithfulness and the assembly of the holy ones for who in the skies can be compared to the lord who among the heavenly beings is like the lord a God greatly to be feared in the council of the Holy Ones and awesome above all who are around him. And that just makes it really plain, doesn't it? You see here again, the assembly of the Holy Ones. Mm. Uh, People have tried to make this the assembly of the uh, human leaders or whatever, but no, it specifically says, let the heavens praise your wonders, your faithfulness in the assembly of the Holy One. So it all in one sentence there. And then it says to make sure there's no doubt that God is in control for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord. Yes. Yeah. And again, it uses later on the council of the Holy One, awesome above all who are around him. So you kind of picture the Holy One's around him as part of the team that's doing things. And it's also, you you missed there, the heavenly beings too, who among the heavenly (laughs) beings. So it's like this, yeah, this verse is full of, these verses are full of that. Yeah, which includes everything. So yeah, it's, it's saying literally there that everything that's out there, God is over everything. Yes. So here's a term that Heiser used and a lot of other people. In fact, it was popular a millennia ago, but divine counsel. So that's what that's what we'll we'll be referring to this as the group of B'nai Elohim that are with God, Yahweh God, in this heavenly assembly. Let me read Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. There's the sons of God again. And could this be referring to the time when God put those Daniel chapter 10 princes over the nations? Every nation gets a ruling B'nai Elohim except Israel, which God claims as his own. Sad but true, so many non-believers in the world without the hope of heaven, yet so many believers who have the ridiculous idea of sitting all alone on a cloud and harping. I don't think I could take that. 
And that's despite what the Bible says about the unseen realm. Even with the few brushstrokes we get, scripture paints such a rich picture. Myriads of intriguing beings, interactions, and collaboration with God himself. And I'm just speculating here. We know that on planet Earth, there are 10 million species that we've cataloged so far. 200 billion trillion stars. And God didn't need any of that. He just overflows with creativity and beauty and adventure. There's a beautiful sea anemone right this moment at the Mm -hmm. bottom of the ocean somewhere. And no one will ever see it except God. It's going to live its whole life and die. But God sees adventure and enjoyment in that. And in a distant galaxy right now, I'm thinking there's probably some vast multicolored expanding nebula that, that no person will ever see. And it's all just there because God enjoys beauty, creativity, and just life in general. So I wouldn't be surprised if the unseen realm that we've been talking about is just so incredibly more diverse and complicated than we can even begin to imagine. In this episode, we've tried to lay out some of the players in the unseen supernatural world. But you know, as we just mentioned, this isn't a static place with every being sitting around soaking up celestial rays. Since before the natural universe was created, there's been an ongoing narrative. There's a lot more going on in the spiritual world than we realize or sometimes even want to acknowledge. Just to say again, Ephesians six twelve: for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, and over the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, and later in that passage, it talks about how we can protect ourselves and the emphasis on prayer. We don't want this to be focused on dark or scary things, but just that God is above it all. And ultimately, through Jesus, we have the victory. In the next episode, we'll dig even deeper into the ongoing drama in the unseen realm. We'll see how the realization of the unseen realm should not move us to fear, but move us to pray and move us to see how big God is. If you want to dive more into this topic, we recommend Michael Heisner's book, Unseen Realm, but with some cautionary statements. It's very academic, and I don't think it's a very good read for a new Christian, but I really like how Heisner attempts to tackle passages that are hard for pastors to talk about on Sunday mornings. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to comment or ask questions, send us an email at godintheparanormal at gmail.com. You can also get more information at our website, thinkingaboutthebible.com. If you found this podcast useful or interesting, please tell others about it. And please subscribe here on this YouTube page and give us a thumbs up. If you'd like more information about various weirder topics like mechanical elves and other things from a biblical worldview, you can check out Dr. John McWilliams' book, God in the Paranormal, available at Amazon. One of the reasons we started this podcast is because I personally enjoyed this book so much and I wanted to talk more about the topics in it.